This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 95th episode of the program. Today is May 19th, and before we get started, I want to thank all of these individuals for deciding to support us either through PayPal or Patreon. So today, we have to thank Bear 71 Banerjee, Brandon Nunez, Christopher Place, Chris Wood, Eliza Miller, Emily Surrett, Francisco Antonio Medina Saldana, Greta Bollinger, Holly Edgecombe, Jermaine Lee, Jill K. Wessel, Lena Henderson, Leslie Navalta, Lynn Ferguson, Margaret Michael Williams, Natasha Shaver, Roxy Lau, Sal Zerbo, and Scott Stevens. So all of you are guardian angels at this point because as you all know, the YouTube demonetization issue, it hasn't gone away and To all of you supporting the show, thank you so much. If you have a dollar or two to spare for other progressive news shows that you support, then I would implore you to do that because at this point, it doesn't seem like YouTube is taking any significant steps to correct the situation in any meaningful way. They keep telling us to wait. So if you really love and enjoy the content of someone, then please consider supporting them as well. But to everyone who signed up to support us, Thank you so much. Your generosity means the world to me. So on today's episode, there are so many issues. Um, I don't even know how I was able to narrow it down. But nonetheless, I'll first be talking about the FCC's vote to gut net neutrality and how FCC Chairman Ajit Pai is now doing damage control. I'll also talk about the drama in Washington, D.C. surrounding Donald Trump and the Comey memo and what this means for the future of Donald Trump's administration. Now, additionally, in this episode, we'll talk about the push for Medicare for All at town halls, the Bernie Sanders and John Kasich town hall, Bernie Sanders' potential 2020 presidential run, Medicare for All in New York, Jeff Sessions' crackdown on crime, and how Wall Street is bribing Democrats to get them to repeal Dodd-Frank. And finally, I'll talk about how the DNC is now facing another class action lawsuit in addition to the DNC fraud lawsuit. So all of these topics are going to be discussed on today's episode. We also have a voicemail and a Patreon poll. So this is a jam-packed show, so let's waste no time. Let's go ahead and jump right in. So, we all knew this day was coming, but in a 2-1 to vote yesterday, the FCC voted to officially gut net neutrality. Now, this would kill the internet as we know it. We'd be looking at a completely different internet where information is stifled, where there are fast lanes and slow lanes, and websites who don't pay a ransom to Comcast and Verizon are punished and may even die off. So, this is a very scary situation. And now it is becoming a reality. So CNET explains, On Thursday, the Federal Communications Commission voted 2-1 to on a proposal to strip out the existing regulations that govern net neutrality or the concept that all internet traffic must be treated equally. This is an initial vote that opens the issues up for comments. The FCC will entertain public input until August and hold a final vote later this year. But given the Republican majority on the commission, a vote to remove the existing rules is a virtual certainty. 
Today's vote represents the first significant step toward dismantling regulations that have been in place since 2015, potentially changing the way the internet works. Proponents, Democrats, internal companies, and consumer advocacy groups argue that the rules were necessary to ensure that internet service providers like Verizon and Comcast couldn't play favorites or charge more for faster access, while critics, Republicans, and ISPs said the rules were too onerous and stifle innovation and investment in infrastructure. Public policy group Consumer Union called the vote chilling. Eliminating the open internet order takes away the internet's level playing field and would allow a select few corporations to choose winners and losers, preventing consumers from accessing the content that they want, when they want it, said Jonathan Schwantes, senior policy counsel for Consumers Union. So, we are officially in crisis mode. So the next few months may be the last months that we ever have of a free and open internet because if this goes through, I can't even imagine how this is going to impact democracy, how this will impact independent media websites because if you think that the humanist support has the resources to pay the ransom that Comcast imposes on us and that they inevitably will impose on us, we don't. You all know we don't. So this is bad. This is really bad. And I want to reiterate a statement that I said before in the past, but I need everyone to get on board, including Republicans, because if you are conservative, know that this is a nonpartisan issue. Even though leftists scream about this the most, if you like reading The Daily Caller, if you like reading Breitbart, this will impact your access to those websites too because Verizon, AT&T, Charter, Comcast, they can say, you know what, Breitbart hasn't paid for us to implement a fast lane and make their access faster. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to slow down traffic to Breitbart and nobody will be able to access that website because bandwidth and traffic will come to a crawl. That will effectively kill off Breitbart. So if you honestly think that this won't affect you, you're in for a rude awakening when they actually do vote to kill net neutrality because you're looking at a completely different internet. Now, it's not over yet because after voting for these rules, the FCC is required to receive input from the public as the article states. And thankfully, Democrats have pledged to wage war on the FCC. So Recode explains, nobody believes the Republicans who are saying they want strong net neutrality or they're going to come up with a better way, said Pallone, the top Democrat on the House Committee overseeing the FCC during an interview with Recode. I'm not interested in this nonsense. It'll be a campaign issue if they repeal it, he added. Our focus now is to say to the FCC, please don't do this. So if Democrats do what's right and they actually make this a big issue, then that will significantly help grassroots activists who are already fighting to stop Ajit Pai's insidious agenda. So according to The Verge, on Sunday, protesters from the Protect Our Internet campaign went around Pai's neighborhood in Arlington, Virginia, and distributed door hangers at nearby homes, prompting people to be aware of their neighbors' efforts to limit internet freedom. The flyers feature a black-and-white photo of Pai, along with a short description of the chairman's background and how his proposal would roll back open internet rules. And also, activists held a vigil in front of Ajit Pai's house in support of net neutrality. So you can support grassroots activists that are leading the cause by going to websites such as protectourinternet.org. You can also visit gofccyourself.com for updates, as well as thehumanistreport.com forward slash hyphen 
save the internet for links to take action. These will all be in the description box. Now is not a time to be silent. Now is not the time for complacency. This is something that will harm everyone, with the exception of the CEOs at Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, and Charter. And you need to know that Ajit Pai is using Orwellian doublespeak to push this because he knows that net neutrality is overwhelmingly popular. So by saying that he's going to bring about a free and open internet, he's lying to you. And he's lying to you at the behest of the likes of Verizon, who he was an attorney for. And they paid him lots of money. And if you think that they're not going to reward him again after he gets out of the FCC for doing this, you're horribly mistaken. So we've got to make our voices heard. We have to. You can stop this, but you have to tweet to Ajit Pai. You have to write them letters, physical and digital. You have to file an official complaint at the FCC's website. You can do this at humansreport.com. Again, on this particular page, save the internet. There are no ads. I'm not trying to benefit from it personally, but we all benefit if we can keep the current Title II net neutrality regulations on the books. So this is disgusting and when i woke up to this news even though i expected it i was actually trembling that's how that's how shaken i am from this news this is not acceptable at all again this is a nonpartisan issue this affects conservatives progressives it affects every single person who's not a millionaire who's not wealthy this isn't hyperbole comcast already showed us what life would be like without Title II regulations in 2014 when they tried to kill off Netflix. So if you were watching Netflix and you got that buffering symbol and shows just came to a crawl, well, that was when old rules expired, which prompted the uh, codification of new rules in 2015, which basically solidified net neutrality. It also hurts consumers because now they can offer tiered packages to where, you know, if you want Facebook and social media, you got to pay five bucks more. If you want uh, streaming like Hulu and Netflix, you got to pay another 10 bucks. I mean, there are so many possibilities that could come to fruition that it's just unimaginable. And I don't even want to think about that. So we have to fight, please. Every single one individual comment helps. You can make a difference. You can, you can make your voice heard, but you actually have to do it. You have to understand the consequences of what's at stake here you have to understand that we cannot let this come to pass please speak out contact the Pai, contact the fcc file an official complaint they're now taking our input we know they're going to ignore it as much as they can but we can't stop fighting this is very important FCC Chairman Ajit Pai recently launched an all-out attack on the internet as we know it, and he has vied to gut current net neutrality rules that mandates that the internet be regulated as a utility under Title II. Now, there has been overwhelming feedback given to the FCC by millions of people who submitted complaints, who submitted comments, telling him to leave the internet alone. It's currently free. It's currently open. We don't need you to come in with your pro-corporate agenda and ruin the internet as we know it. But Ajit Pai is not taking anyone's concerns seriously, and to demonstrate how he's doing that, he decided to make fun of the people who are worried about the state of the internet and he tried to also simultaneously humanize himself by reading mean tweets sent to him. Now, the like to dislike ratio perfectly illustrates how this is probably one of the most cringeworthy videos that you may ever watch. But what this also demonstrates is that Ajit Pai doesn't care about what you have to say because not once did he take a tweet that had anything to do with net neutrality. He only isolated the ad hominem attacks against him and 
the implication was that this is the feedback he's receiving. Nobody has legitimate concerns about net neutrality. So let's watch and then uh, we'll talk about it afterwards. Hi, I'm Ajit Pai. I'm the chairman of the FCC. I really enjoy the public debate about the future of the internet. And I especially appreciate some of your tweets. At Charisse, Ajit Pai reminds me of Pinocchio, except instead of his nose growing when he lies, his head starts bubbling. Hashtag Pie Bubblehead. Charisse, I find that really offensive. I always tell the truth. At Freedom Game 1776, Ajit Pai, go back to Africa, where you came from. <laughs> Do you even English, bro? At the Real Solo Poke tweets, Ajit Pai is another fascist who needs to be apprehended and to be put on trial for crimes against the people. The guillotines are coming. Well, you're not gonna catch me if I'm back in Africa now, are ya? At Fuffy Destoya tweets, Ajit Pai, why do you hate America? Why do I hate America? Why do I hate America? Skinny jeans, kale, the Raiders, people who say acronyms like Bay and claim to be woke. I mean, what more evidence do you need? At Alco's SMB, breaking new, Ajit Pai sent to jail for treason. American women less creeped out due to lack of Pai's face around. Well, when I get out of jail for treason, as Matthew McConaughey said, I might be older, but they'll be the same age. At Woke Crumbum tweets, Ajit Pai has an insanely punchable face. The fact that he's not getting decked in the mouth every day shows there's no justice in the world. I think my wife might have a fake account on Twitter. At Genuine tweets, who else thinks a Jeep pie looks like Theodore of chipmunk fame? At 78 RPM, I think you might have a point. At Bartiz tweets, I bet a Jeep pie eats mayo sandwiches. That is fake news, man. At Stop the Cap tweets, Ajit Pai is the bad boy wrestler of truthiness that nobody loves to hate. He's a legend in his own mind. <laughs> Yeah, at Jay Rischel, I think I Am John Oliver showed incredible restraint by not pointing out how much Ajit Pai looks like Butthead. I always thought of myself more as a Beavis type myself, but I see where you're coming from. At Kevin Ken Kevin tweets, A Pai is the Uncle Tom of the Indian people. He is an embarrassment for all non-whites. His sycophantic behavior kissing white ass is gross. As a conflicted brown man, I was on the fence, but when you put it in all caps, you persuaded me. At P Powers 345 tweets, and hashtag Ajit Pai, lose the stupid mug. And stop quoting Big Lebowski. You look like an idiot. Oh wait, you are an idiot. Never mind. That's just like your opinion, man. We good? Okay. Thanks guys. Right. Anyone have my coffee? <laughs> Alright. So that was absolutely cringeworthy. It was difficult to get through. Um, it was bad and he should feel bad. That was just embarrassing. And again, how many times did he mention net neutrality? Zero. 
Uh, you, you did see net neutrality on the title screen, but he did not address it. He took the complaints that obviously were not representative of the overwhelming majority of complaints, and he decided to make it about him. Well, this isn't about you. It's only about you with respect to the fact that you're trying to, to destroy the internet, but we don't care about you, Ajit. Nobody cares about you. Stop trying to make this about you. This is about your agenda and what you're trying to do to destroy the internet. You're claiming that, that rolling back net neutrality is going to to open up the internet when it would do the exact opposite so you're a liar and this cringeworthy video is not going to humanize you because we know you're a corporate puppet and you're refusing to address the legitimate grievances that we have with your harmful agenda and this just came off as you know how do you do fellow kids i'm i'm down with you kids and another reason why he's doing this is because he wants to give us the impression that he's actually listening to our feedback but if anything you basically poked fun at the people who were giving you feedback. And again, I want to reiterate here that the comments on that video, the tweets that he read, those are ad hominem attacks. Those do not represent the overwhelming majority of comments and feedback that the FCC and Ajit Pai has received. We have a very legitimate concern about net neutrality. He's doing everything in his power to limit access to the internet not just for for poor people, but everyone. And during the limited amount of time that he's been the FCC chairman, he's already taken drastic steps to cut off the internet to poor people by stripping away the uh, lifeline subsidy. And now he wants to kill off the internet as we know it by gutting net neutrality at the behest of his former employer and future employer. Verizon. So if anything, Ajit, you're making matters worse because this isn't going to make us think that you're personable. You're a tool. This entire mean tweet segment was disingenuous and you know why people are tweeting at you and emailing the FCC and calling the FCC. You only care about the corporate agenda of Verizon because you know that you're going to get a huge bonus when they inevitably hire you back. You're despicable. So... We're going to continue tweeting at you because what you're doing is unacceptable. This is one of the most egregious things that a public official has ever done to the American public before. And you will not get away with it. We will continue to fight you on this issue. Grassroots activism will push back with everything that we have because what you're doing is wrong on so many levels. As you all know, CNN hosted a town hall featuring Bernie Sanders and John Kasich and the verdict is in. It was pretty disappointing. You know, I was expecting something more along the lines of the Bernie Sanders-Ted Cruz debate, where you kind of pin someone who's a democratic socialist and their policy ideas against someone who's a right-wing extremist. And I think that that dynamic is really interesting. However, you know, it was CNN, so all they wanted to focus on was Donald Trump and his incompetence and his corruption. So, you know, I, I really would have hoped that policy substance would have been at the forefront of this debate or town hall or whatever you want to call it. And I don't fault Bernie Sanders for that, but that wasn't the case. Nonetheless, at the discussion that we were given, there were some points that I did want to talk about. So there was one portion where Bernie Sanders psychoanalyzed President Trump. I'm not a psychiatrist and uh, not a lawyer, uh, but there's something strange uh, going on, I think, uh, with Mr. Trump. You know, John, I, I don't know if you'll agree with me or not on this, uh, but there has never been a president or even a candidate who has lied all of the time. I mean, we're looking at Donner and Jake right now. Essentially, what he has said is they are liars. Don't believe a word that anybody in the mainstream media 
fix this problem. Sure, you've had problems with the media. I've had problems with the media. But I'm not here to tell you that everybody in the media is a liar. That is undermining what America is about. This is a guy who said when a judge ruled against them, I believe appropriately, on this Muslim ban, he said, this is a so-called judge. This is the president of the United States undermining our judiciary. Uh, this is a, a president uh, who is trying to divide us up, whether we were born in America or born in Mexico or whether we are Muslims. This is not a typical president. I don't think this is just a learning curve. I think he's a smart guy. But something else is going on. And all of this leads me and his affection for Putin and is trying, all of this leads me to think that you got an authoritarian type mind here, uh, somebody who is not a great believer in dissent or democracy. And that worries me very much. So after watching that, I think that for the most part, most of what Bernie Sanders said was agreeable. However, there are some points that I do want to push back on. So for example, Bernie Sanders said that Trump's affection for Putin leads him to believe that Donald Trump has an authoritarian type mind. However, when I hear that, I don't think that Donald Trump's so-called affection for Putin is a persuasive argument because he's taken a demonstrably more adversarial position towards Russia in comparison with even Obama. So Obama never bombed Syrian airfields. Trump did. Obama worked with Putin to limit nuclear stockpiles of both countries, and Trump told Putin that he's not in favor of that. Now, Donald Trump did bend over backwards to make sure that the GOP did not agree to include arming Ukrainian rebels as part of their platform, but that was Obama's policy as well. So I don't think that it's a persuasive argument Donald Trump just simply saying nice things about Putin from time to time doesn't prove that he has affection for Putin when he's been more aggressive towards Putin than Obama. I think that we should be doing more to repair our relationship with Russia because they're a nuclear power in our countries. You know, if they're at odds with each other, that poses a threat for not just our countries, but for the world. It's an internationally destabilizing proposition to think of war between the two of them. So I, I don't agree with Bernie there. However, I absolutely agree with Bernie when he talks about how Donald Trump has an authoritarian type mind. But I think a more apt example is not to compare Donald Trump's affection for Putin, you know, to kind of demonstrate how he has an authoritarian type mind, like Bernie Sanders says. I think a better example to cite is Erdogan, because President Trump recently called to congratulate the Turkish president after a referendum that allowed him to consolidate his power and basically turn Turkey into an authoritarian regime, just <laughs> solidifying their path towards, you know, dictatorship uh, went his way. So he literally called Erdogan and said, congratulations, you know, uh, congratulating him for being a dictator, apparently. I think that's a more powerful example, but what Bernie Sanders did is he, he kind of undermined the point he was trying to make by simply jumping on the Russian hysteria bandwagon. I think that if you want to make the point about Donald Trump admiring dictators, you call him out for congratulating a president of a so-called democracy that basically just turned the country into an official dictatorship. So I wish Bernie Sanders would have used that as, as an example, because when Donald Trump praises dictators, and I know the Democrats criticize him for this, I don't really find that to be a powerful attack against Donald Trump, because Donald Trump is following the same trend that previous presidents have followed. I mean, every president praises dictators. I mean, we're supplying weapons to the Saudis who are currently massacring civilians in Yemen, and each president just continues to turn a blind eye to their war crimes and the crimes that Saudis commit against their own people. So we love Saudi Arabia, even though women are not allowed to drive, 
even though women are not allowed to leave their house unless they have a male companion. However, uh, nobody talks about that. Nobody talks about how George Bush is okay with Saudi oligarchs or how President Obama is soft on them as well. I mean, when it comes to praising dictators, everyone has a problem if you praise a dictator that they don't like. But I think we should be consistent and say, look, if you are going to condemn Donald Trump for praising dictators, you should also condemn all the other presidents that did the same exact thing. So if you really want to illustrate, if Bernie Sanders anyways wants to illustrate his argument uh, and make the case for why Donald Trump is an authoritarian like mine, I agree with him. I'm with him there. And Bernie's argument, you know, it is persuasive because he is an authoritarian type mind. I think that's just embedded in Donald Trump. He's an authoritarian by nature. I mean, he's egotistical. He's narcissistic. He's a megalomaniac. So, I mean, I do think that he has authoritarian tendencies and congratulating Erdogan speaks to that more than anything else. But not to undermine Bernie Sanders' overall point, I think what he's trying to say is that Donald Trump is unique. He's not like other presidents. You know, there's some underlying psychological issues that haven't been addressed. And I, I do agree with that. And Bernie Sanders also brought up how Donald Trump is a liar. And I think that this is something that is... It's not even debatable at this point. Donald Trump has proven to be a liar. However, John Kasich would not admit that Donald Trump is, in fact, a liar. Is Trump a liar? Or am I being using hyperbole here? Is he a liar? Well, you know, sometimes he says things I don't agree with, and I think they don't resemble the facts. But I'm not going to go <laughs> okay. over No, wait a minute. Right. No, wait a minute. But there's a difference between saying sometimes when I see, I can see that there are politicians that say things that don't resemble the facts. And I can, I can actually call some people very close to me on the facts don't matter, right. or reality. Okay. But I'm not going to go so far as to call somebody a liar. All right. you I would, mean, that's where you get, when you start using terms like that, but Rick, if you, Bernie, we've seen it in Congress. We saw it you know, back I mean, in the days when we were in the majority and they were after Jim Wright and, and well, all those things. Right. There but, was a lot of, of calling you right, know, all the, liar. We just let the facts speak for themselves, and then we can draw a conclusion. And I'm only saying this not because I'm trying to defend anybody. I'm worried about my country. I'm worried about us getting through this and moving on. But I think when we talk about on. the facts, I mean, Jake asked a, a, a pretty simple question. And, and I'm just, all that I'm saying is it's not a question. You're a conservative. I don't think you're a liar. We disagree on everything. But that doesn't make you a liar. I hope it okay. doesn't make me a liar. But if you were to tell me that three to five million people voted illegally in this election, of which no Republican official or Democratic official believes, what should I say? Yeah. I think that's a lie. I, 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 look, I, I guess I'm going to belabor this. I didn't <laughs> think I would. Does that mean somebody that writes a campaign ad that distorts somebody's record is, is a liar? I mean, we just have to be careful about our terms. That's all I'm okay, saying. Okay, all right. Let okay. it be. Let it, we'll okay. burn it. Okay. okay. So at the end of the clip, I was so frustrated because Bernie Sanders shouldn't have conceded there to John Kasich. Because what John Kasich said <laughs> was such a stupid cop-out. I mean, he said, you know, um, Trump isn't a liar, but sometimes he just says things that don't resemble the facts. So, in other words, he's a fill-in-the-blank. He's a liar. And I think that, you, you know, what John Kasich is going for is he's trying to pre pretend like he's this Puritan and he cares about political decorum and he doesn't want the country to devolve into the state where, just, where we're just constantly spewing vitriol. But, I mean, you have to call a spade a spade. Donald Trump is a liar. He stated that 3 million people voted illegally in the last election. Now, if he believes that, then he's delusional. 
If he doesn't believe that, then he's a liar. Either way, I mean, I don't know which one is more problematic, but to say that Donald Trump is a liar, it's not debatable. It's like saying water is wet. So I find John Kasich's, you know, him just not having a spine there really embarrassing because he's someone that's supposedly a maverick. He gets praised on the left and the right for trying to be above the fray of politics. But I mean, come on, it's Donald Trump. Of course he's a liar. That's that's not even debatable. He's contradicting himself more than probably any president in recent history. He is a liar, and there's some issues going on. So in the end, getting back to, you know, the overall town hall, I think that CNN did a poor job. And honestly, I expected more from someone like Jake Tapper, who really is the last person that I have any respect for at CNN. I mean, you know, I'm not I'm not with him 100% of the time, but you would think that someone like Jake Tapper, who's more tuned into the needs of his audience, it seems, would focus more on policy. So if you're going to have these town halls, you have a unique opportunity to bring together people on opposite sides of the political spectrum and have a real discussion about policies. But focusing on Donald Trump, I mean, I yeah, I get it. He's incompetent. He's corrupt. But there are so many issues being ignored right now. Net neutrality. Medicare for all. And you know that Bernie Sanders wants to talk about these issues because one of the things that he always does is dodges questions in order to pivot to policy substance. And that's why we like Bernie Sanders. So this is just so frustrating to me. Either we're going to impeach Donald Trump uh, and get back to the issues or we're not. We just we have to make a decision and we need to get back to the issues because, again, focusing on all the shenanigans is just allowing us to... Ignore the issues that are so important right now that they can't be ignored. So I would have expected more from this, um, and I don't fault Bernie Sanders for this. I don't even fault John Kasich for this. I do fault CNN for steering the entire town hall in that direction to talk about Donald Trump. They they have such a one-track mind, and the reason why they want to talk about Donald Trump is because that's how you get ratings. I mean, why do you think they covered him nonstop during the primaries? They gave him $2 billion worth of free coverage. And if you think they're going to stop now, they're not. Because admittedly, Donald Trump is a fascinating figure. What we're witnessing really is unprecedented. I don't think we've had this big of a man-child ever in office. So I understand it, but I mean, if you're the news media, you have to inform the public. How many people know about net neutrality and that it's under attack? How many people know that they're getting screwed over right now when it comes to healthcare? And we're not getting the same thing that our Canadian neighbors are getting. I mean, how many people know this? It's the media's job to inform us. And so this this was such a disappointment. Representative Ruben Cahuen is a freshman congressman representing Nevada's 4th district. Now, had I been able to vote in this district, I probably would have voted for him as well because on the campaign trail, he stated his belief that healthcare is a basic human right, and once he was elected, he quickly became a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. So, seemingly, this guy is an ally. However, One thing he hasn't done since he's been elected is co-sponsor H.R. 676 like the rest of his colleagues in the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Now, this is strange, given what he said on the campaign trail. So, he recently held a town hall 
back in his district and his constituents showed up to ask him why he has yet to co-sponsor HR 676 because if you claim that healthcare is a basic human right then there's no better way to prove that than by co-sponsoring this bill that would guarantee healthcare to every single citizen. So one of his constituents named Amy showed up to tell her story and explain why Medicare for All is so important. This is what she had to say. I have stood and told the death of my daughter's story on TV. I have told it, I have organized rallies. I have gone before news press conferences. I have did a, a joint press release with Dina Titus to fight the HCA. I have done this every time I tell that story. Sorry, it's Mother's Day. It tears a scab off of my heart. They told her, the first thing they asked her was, do you have insurance? And my daughter said, no, her fate was sealed. I was out of town on business, otherwise I'd been there advocating for her. My daughter begged and begged, and she called me crying and not helping me, and begged for something for the pain and some diagnostic testing so they could discover what was wrong with her leg. They specifically, they kept on telling her, you can leave now, it won't cost you anything, there's the door. She kept on begging anyway. I was on the phone with her when they told her specifically, go get insurance and see a specialist. We're not a doctor's office. If insurance did not matter in her treatment and care, my daughter would still be alive. And I am speaking as a dual insured person. I am speaking out for everyone else here. My daughter died because she did not have insurance. I had to do what no mother had to do. My daughter died in my arms from pulmonary embolism from a blood clot that was in her leg that would have cost $1,000 to diagnose. I had to go and pick out a new shirt for her because the incisions from her organ donation were so high up on her collarbone that she couldn't wear her normal clothing. They had to pull me away from her casket because I was screaming and crying because I knew that was the last moment that I was going to touch my daughter or ever see her alive again and all I have left is this hair in my hand that's the only thing I have left of my daughter after 22 years and I'm just before you now I'm also a CFO I know what you're up against I know what the bill calls for I know it calls for companies to go nonprofit. I get it I understand completely I know that bill like the back of my hand HR 676 I know it well and I know what you're against but we won't have a path forward if we don't get our Democrats online. It's going to be the litmus test. If we don't get you guys online and get on board to make a path for us and show the rest of the country that there's people that are going to stand up, that are going to be there for you to, to Medicare for all, if you don't jump on board with your, with your code, your, um, the rest of your progressive caucus and become a co-sponsor, more and more people are going to die. This is under the ACA that this happened. And I stand up because like you, I don't want anybody else to die. I don't want anybody else without insurance. And I will stand up for anyone on ACA. And I will share my daughter's story with pride to protect the ACA. But it didn't save her. It didn't save her. She's an example of what happens if they go to the AHCA. Please, I'm begging you. Please, be a front runner on it. This will cross party lines. It's been 60% of Americans are approving it. They even have Republicans coming out now. And I'm sorry if I'm so emotionally dispensed. One death, if it's your daughter, if you can imagine if your mother lost you, one death is one too many. And please. 
So what happened to Amy's daughter is something that should never happen. It wouldn't have happened in Canada. It wouldn't have happened in the United Kingdom. And it wouldn't even happen in Saudi Arabia. However, the United States is unique in that unlike other modern industrialized nations, we're the only country that doesn't guarantee healthcare as a right. So I want to reiterate something that Amy said. She said, one death is one too many. And, you know, I don't think I've ever heard a more poignant statement ever. Because as someone who lived through the death of their child, no parent should ever have to bury their child. But I don't know how after hearing her story, anyone with a heart can come out against Medicare for all. However, after sharing her story and breaking down in front of her congressman, who is a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Ruben Kehuen still told her basically the answer is no. Well, thank you for sharing that story, and I, I'm very sorry for your loss. Um, I can't even imagine the pain that you're going through or that you went through. Uh, for me, it's not that I oppose uh, HR 676 or that I'm against it. Uh, for me right now, it is of utmost importance of spending every bit of energy that I have to protect what we have right now in place. And, and again, every year. And, and, and I say this, and I say you this have because to start somewhere you because start building that coalition a, a, a few, more, a few weeks ago. Less. Now, I am so grateful that for everything you're doing every day, I am doing what you're doing in Congress. I can't do it at the grassroots level anymore. This is as grassroots as I can get right now. And I'll start knocking the door. We're not asking you to take off. It's not to the point of being passed. Let's be real. We just want your name on the co-sponsor list. That's all we want. Look, and I came here to listen to you as well. I came to listen to your stories. I came to listen to why you support it. Again, I'm not sitting here opposing it. I'm not here telling you that, you know, this is the worst bill in the world. Um, You know, I'm not bought and paid for by anyone. So what you just watched was a sitting congressman look a grieving mother in the face and tell her, no, I will not co-sponsor HR 676. And let's think about really what she's asking him to do. That's it. Sign your name. That's it. It'll take two seconds and then you're done. You could show us that you are on the side of people like Amy who lost her daughter because America does not have a single-payer healthcare system. The Affordable Care Act expanded coverage to many, but Lots of people are still left out, including Amy's daughter. But that congressman heard her story, looked her in the eye, and said no, basically. He gave her a bullshit answer. And as you saw in the video, uh, (laughs) they started to push back, and rightfully so. But that's not where this story ends, because his constituents completely put him in his place because what he said is inexcusable because one of his colleagues dina titus she did co-sponsor hr 676 and she's still fighting against the ahca so there's no reason why you can't do both and this is what his constituents told him right now we get the affordable care repeal if they get the 51 votes forget about medicare for all how about medicare for no one that's what we're faced with right now that's just 24 million people are going to miss their health coverage I'm sorry, that's people. an excuse. Well, well, that's we're, yeah, that's it's a valid excuse. Well, we're not asking you to. Look, and I'm saying, let, let, let's, let's protect the Affordable Care Act right now. I promise you, I promise you, I give you my word right now, you all hear, you know, you see it on social media. I will be the first. As soon as we defeat that in the Senate, 
I will come back here. We'll do a round table. We'll talk about this and we'll strategize on how to move forward. With, so everybody has to co-sponsor it now. Because I am focused my entire energy it right now. So 50%, over 50% of Democratic Congress people have already co-sponsored it. Over 50%. Most of your caucus. Most 108 already in county. Dina Titus have done it. You can see, all you got to do is put your name on the bill and then go fight against the AHCA. Go fight against, uh, you know, Trump care. But all you got to do is walk over to John Conyers' desk and say, I would like to put my name on the bill. And then that bill might come in 2020 when we have for majorities. Uh, right now, it's not even going to come on the floor yet. But just co-sponsor it, join the majority because that is the future that should be on the democratic platform. Yes, let's not go backwards against the ACA. Let's not go backwards with Trump care because, because it's going to add more people to uninsured. But, uh, but the thing is that ACA leaves 30 million people uninsured on average. And the ACA will leave 50 million. It will add 20 more or so, 24 more, whatever the numbers. So how come having 50 million uninsured is horrible, which it is, but having 30 million is okay? So yes. Let's not go backwards, but let's go to zero, you know, so oh, it doesn't hurt to put the name on the bill That's not a good excuse. I, I, I love everything you said so far. I think you're great The politician Dina Titus co-sponsored it the majority of Congress people in the Democratic Party have co-sponsored it a new poll came out But from Harvard 75% of Democrats approve of HR 676 single-payer Medicare for all 40 6% of Republicans approve, 30% of Republicans disapprove. More Republicans approve than disapprove. ACA it was a good step forward, but it's not the ultimate solution. It does have a lot of flaws, like having 30 million people unimproved, uh, uninsured, and 45,000 Americans die every year, including my stepdaughter, Shalene. My wife right now is a shell of a person. Every morning, she can't even barely living. And that's what else on the ACA. So I understand. Let's fight against the ACA. That's a horrible, inhumane bill. I understand that. But you can do both. I do not buy that excuse that you and other Democrats have used. And another thing, too, if you guys go for Medicare for All, you will win. You win in 2018. You win in 2020. You will win. Use that as your championship, and you will win. There are so many Republicans that want HR 676. Even if they don't even fully understand what even that number and letters mean, they want universal health care. This is a nonpartisan thing that everybody wants. And I understand being a freshman, I understand the fire you are under, but you need to help us. Please, please. So that right there is exactly what you do to hold your elected officials accountable. That was... That was great because they responded with facts. They responded with public opinion polls. And they made it so that way if you don't agree with them, if you don't agree with the facts, then you're unreasonable. And we shouldn't have to be putting this level of pressure on someone who's an ally. Again, this guy is a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. So there's no reason why he didn't co-sponsor HR 76 on day one. But yet, he's unwilling to do that. Now, I want to say something about the guy in the video who you heard, who basically put him in his place. His name is David, and that's not the first time he stood up to fight for what's right. So he actually confronted Senator Catherine Cortez Masto at an earlier town hall that I covered on the show. And him and his wife, who lost their daughter have been strong allies in the fight for Medicare for All. And I've been in contact with them for a while now. And I will be sharing their daughter's story on the podcast. And every time 
I hear one of them tell their story, and every time I see them confront a congressman or congresswoman about their lack of support for H.R. 676, it encourages me to continue fighting because if they can fight after dealing with what they went through, which, again, no parent should ever have to go through, then there's no excuse for any of us. They went through the unimaginable nightmare situation, and I don't even know how to explain it as anything other than a nightmare that you can't wake up from. And they're still fighting. So whenever you feel discouraged, think about David and Amy and what they went through and how they're still not backing down and they're still willing to fight, not just for them, not just so that way they can get justice for their daughter, but fight for something that benefits all of us. Now, after Representative Ruben Kehuen was confronted, he still basically said no. And his constituents literally begged him and pleaded with him to co-sponsor H.R. 676. That didn't move him. I am not here ignoring your suggestions. Um, I, I could have simply said no to this. I could have simply said no to this and, and gone about my day and enjoyed my Saturday. But I know this is important. And that is why I'm here. And I am listening to you. But all I'm saying is, and, 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 and I hope you understand, this is not that I oppose your, the bill. This is not that I oppose the effort that you're making. As a matter of fact, I am grateful that you're making this effort. But right now, again, we're one or two votes away from getting the Affordable Care Act repealed in the Senate. You're not in the Senate. And I really hope, I really hope that every tweet, Facebook, email, and and call that you're making is not to my office. That it is to Dean Heller's office to make sure that he votes against repealing the Affordable Care Act. I don't have to tell you guys, because if you're watching the show, you're already progressive. You know that his answer was a complete cop-out, and what he said was inexcusable, and he even had the nerve to say, I hope you're not calling me. I hope you're calling people like Dean Heller. Well, <laughs> unlike Representative Ruben Cahuen, we're actually capable of multitasking. So yes, we can hold Dean Heller accountable, but we can also hold... Ruben Cohen accountable as well. So you know exactly what we're going to do. We're going to call Ruben and ask him why he refuses to listen to his constituents. His number is 202-225-9894. Ruben is not available. Record your message after the tone. When you've finished, you can hang up or press 1 for more options. Hello, Representative Kehuen. My name is Mike Figueredo, and I'm a little bit puzzled because you're a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. You also campaigned on the idea that healthcare is a basic human right. Yet, when I look up Bill HR 676, I don't see your name. So I'm wondering why you have yet to co-sponsor this bill. Now, at a recent town hall, I saw how you looked a grieving mother in the face and said no because we have to fight for the ACA, so we can't even propose an alternative to what the Republicans are doing. And I just wanted to call to let you know that your excuse is not acceptable, and your answer was a cop-out. And let me just tell you this, if you are not willing to co-sponsor H.R. 676, we will be primarying you, you will be voted out of office, and even though you just were sworn in, you will be losing your job, because if you're not in favor of Medicare for All then you're against us. Again, if you are not with us, you are against us on this issue because this is non-negotiable. All you have to do is take 10 seconds of your time, if even that, sign your name on John Conyers' bill, H.R. 676, 
And that's it. That's all you have to do to show us that you are with us. However, you are deciding to be a coward by neglecting the will of your constituents. And I will be doing everything I can to pour money into the campaign of your primary challenger in 2018 if you do not co-sponsor HR 676, grassroots activists are not willing to back down, get on board or get out of Congress because it's time that you stand up for what's right and stop being a coward like every other one of the Democrats in Congress. Thank you. Co-sponsor it. This is not negotiable. So, out of all the congressmen that I've seen tell their constituents no, this is probably the one that's the worst to me. Not only because he heard the story that Amy shared with him, that she was courageous enough to share with him, but because he's a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Why do we have to put this much pressure on you if you consider yourself to be a progressive? Ruben is not a progressive. He's not our ally. And with friends like him, who needs enemies? So please give him a call. Amy and her husband were kind enough to fight for us. Let's fight for them now. Let's call Ruben up and tell him to do the right thing. After House Republicans voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act and replace it with the American Health Care Act, a bill that would strip millions from their health insurance, it is now up to the Senate to determine whether or not Obamacare lives or dies. And before they even vote on it, grassroots activists have spoken out against Senate Republicans and have put pressure on them to not pass this bill because it would be an unmitigated disaster. Now, at a luncheon in Nevada, a grassroots activist named Cheyenne showed up to attend a luncheon with Dean Heller, and she let him know what's at stake and what would happen to her if he does, in fact, go along with his colleagues in the House and vote to repeal the Affordable Care Act. So to me, that was one of the most angering videos I've seen yet out of all of the town halls that I've watched. Because as she's sitting there telling him if he votes to repeal the Affordable Care Act, she would die. There are people in the room booing her. What is wrong with you? What would possess you to boo her? I mean, people who are voting for Republicans like Dean Heller, do they not have any empathy for other human beings? Can you not sympathize with the suffering of others? Or are you that selfish that all you care about are more tax breaks that the Republicans continue to give you? I mean, that was sickening. To every single person that booed Cheyenne, 
you should be ashamed of yourself. Now, what she was pushing for was not just for him to not vote to repeal the ACA, but she also told him that H.R. 676 is the way to go because a Medicare for All system would make sure that nobody in the country dies if they don't have health insurance. And if you think that her getting thrown out was the end of it, it wasn't because she still confronted Dean Heller yet again. Um, I do know that the ACA has its flaws, but it has also saved my life. So my question is, is why will you not support HR 676 when it is mathematically proven to be cheaper than the AHCA and the ACA? Well, first of all, I'm not familiar because I'm not in the house. You just talked to me about That doesn't the house. matter. Yeah. I'm not in office, and yet I do know well, about this. we have the ACA. We have the ACA that's come over from the house. And we're taking a look at it. And I've what do you think clear. about it? I've been very clear. I think you know my positions on that. And that is that I do not support it okay. in its current form. And uh, we have to make sure. We have to make sure that those in Medicaid states like So what do you like think about Nevada, single payer? Like Nevada. I'm not for social medicine. I'm not for that doesn't make any sense when uh, we treat our fire department that way, we treat our police department that way, we treat our schooling that way, but we don't treat our health care that way. public employees that have their, their own health care system, but I want a solid, I want a strong Yeah, that's single-payer, sir. Strong Do you, have you done the math? those that can't afford it, those that can't afford it, should be able to get their health care through Medicaid. So expand Medicaid, but let's Or what about Medicare for all? A healthy, a healthy private industry out there. Yeah, what about Medicare for all? If you qualify, absolutely. No, the Medicare for all is just that, Medicare for all. Well, or, why won't, why won't you be supporting for that? If you have a private uh, care, I'm on disability. why would I want to Okay, and if I lose my disability, because I, I, I am in a high-risk insurance pool, you have to understand that me standing here and looking well, I, hold on, please don't interrupt me. Please don't interrupt me. I am, I am telling you that I could die if right. for whatever reason they, just, they deem me healthy enough, okay? I don't want so, that to happen. So with that being said, Medicare for all. There's a young lady Medicare who, or Medicaid? Which Medicare. Medicare, specifically. Okay. Okay. The Medicaid expansions have well, Medicare, health. you want to take the seniors' health care away from them? That, no, you are putting in? words in my mouth. You, wanna, you are putting you words in my mouth. Medicaid. Sir. I want no. I want to. I want Medicare for all. And Medicare, Medicare will cover everyone: healthy, sick, old, young. Do you understand? I'm sorry. Excuse me. I'm not trying to be condescending. But what I am telling you is that Medicare for all is the way to go, and I need you. I need you to. No, I need you to educate yourself with HR 676. Sorry, Cheyenne, but you were making too much sense, so Dean Heller's handler had to come and save him because, uh, you know, you were putting a congressman in his place. <laughs> so... What frustrates me about that clip now is the fact that he was playing dumb because she brought up H.R. 676. And yes, he is correct that that's a House bill. However, there's a companion bill in the Senate, which was introduced by Bernie Sanders in 2013, and he's going to be reintroducing it this year. So there's absolutely no excuse. And what's frustrating is that that Senate companion piece, S1782, there's not a single co-sponsor, not even Elizabeth Warren or Jeff Merkley co-sponsored Bernie Sanders' bill. So when he reintroduces that bill, 
if they don't co-sponsor it, we will be calling them and we will be relentless because there's no reason why so-called progressives won't get on board with Medicare for all. And it's not an issue that we are willing to negotiate on at all. We are not like I'm just done. This is the one issue where if you don't support it, I don't support you. You will not get my vote. You will not get any money from me or other grassroots activists because this is a non-negotiable issue your lack of support for this is inexcusable at this point so let's talk about what he said though he said i'm not for social medicine which was one of the dumbest things that him and republicans continue to say because cheyenne made the point we treat our fire departments police departments and school systems that way so why don't we treat our healthcare that way as well and this argument about socialized medicine, there's absolutely no merit to it. The only reason why Republicans continue to invoke this tired argument is because it's an easy way to shut down debate. Oh, you're not in favor of socialized medicine? Okay, well then I guess I can't push the envelope with you. Actually, that's not going to work anymore. And when you consider the fact that a plurality of Republicans support Medicare for All, you're not going to be able to weasel your way out of debate by citing socialized medicine and the big socialist boogeyman. It's just not an argument that will resonate with anyone anymore unless they're idiotic. But as we all know, Americans are waking up and we're paying attention now more than ever. So if you think you can get away from talking about Medicare for all because you invoked socialized medicine or the big government boogeyman... It's not going to happen. We're still going to put pressure on you. Now, think of the other sleazy tactic that he used here. He said, oh, so if you want Medicare for all, then you want to take seniors' health care away. Yes, that's exactly what she said, Dean. She said Medicare for all except for seniors. Because, of course, when we say Medicare for all, well, I mean, it's only natural for us to exclude seniors from that discussion. When we say Medicare for all, we're not literally meaning Medicare for all. We're meaning Medicare for everyone who's not a senior. How dumb of an argument is that? We all know that you know that's not the point that Cheyenne was making. So you're just being disingenuous there. And again, these tactics will not work in 2017. Maybe 10 years ago, this would have been persuasive to some people, but we're not taking no for an answer anymore. So what we need to do now is, well, you know what we need to do. <laughs> we're going to be calling up Dean. We're going to tell him one, two, Vote no on the AHCA, and we're also going to tell him to support Medicare for all. Because if he doesn't, then he will be primaried and he will lose. So his office number is 202-224-6244. Thank you for calling Senator Dean Howard's office. Our office is currently closed and will reopen the next business day at 9 a.m. If you would like to leave a message for Senator Heller, please leave your name, mailing address, and message, and we'll be sure to pass it along. Thank you, and have a wonderful day. Hello, this message is for Senator Dean Heller. First of all, I want to let you know that when the vote for the American Healthcare Act comes up, which is a tax cut for the rich disguised as a healthcare bill, Dean will be voting no on that. There's absolutely no room for negotiation there. He will be voting no on that or his constituents will be voting no on him come time to primary him. So that's something that he needs to understand. Voting for this tax cut for the wealthy and repealing the Affordable Care Act is not acceptable. Second of all, it's time for him to join the rest of the country, the majority of the country, a plurality of Republicans 
who are supporting the idea of Medicare for All, his scare tactic about socialized medicine, it's no longer persuasive. He needs to get on board with Medicare for All and show to us that he's not a corporate puppet of his health insurance donors and that he's willing to fight for what's right. So he needs to either get on board or get out of office because we're done with politicians who want to represent their donors over their voters. That's not going to stand anymore. So it's time for Dean to get on board on the right side of issues. So again, vote no on the AHCA, vote yes on Medicare for All. And just to educate him real quick here, S-1782 is the companion bill to H.R. 676. Bernie Sanders introduced that it would bring about a Medicare for All system. Support it or get out of office. So that's basically all we have to say. Um, and look, the reason why I continue to do these calls is because a lot of you have given me a lot of good feedback and said, look, this gives me more confidence. Um, when I see you call, I know what to say now. And look, there's really what I want to stress is that it doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to word it, you know, in the best way possible. You just have to get the point across. And I think that that's that's really all that matters. They know it doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be, you know, a, a three minute message. In fact, I think if you could be more concise, unlike me, um, your message would probably be more powerful. So, um, look, please, we saw how Cheyenne fought for us there. Uh, let's fight for her. Let's call up Dean Heller. Let him know to vote no on the AHCA. And while we're at it, let your senator know that they have to vote no or we vote them out of office. It's as simple as that. Because if they vote in favor of a bill that would lead to people dying, there will be hell to pay come election time. A few weeks ago, we learned that Californian lawmakers are moving forward with a Medicare for All bill, and now this week, we got some more good news. So the New York State Assembly voted to advance a Medicare for All bill themselves. Common Dreams explains the New York Health Act would afford all state residents access to comprehensive inpatient and outpatient care primary and preventative care, prescription drugs, behavioral health services, laboratory testing, and rehabilitative care, as well as dental, vision, and hearing coverage. There would be no premiums, deductibles, or copays. The plan would be funded through progressively raised taxes, including a surcharge that would be split 80-20 between employers and employees. With the fate of the bill now resting with the Senate, proponents like Citizen Action of New York Board President Yvette Alfonso on Tuesday urged state senators to prove once and for all they are with the people and against President Donald Trump. We are at a critical juncture as Washington considers new laws that would further entrench the insurance business, setting back patient access to quality, affordable care, added Jill Ferrillo, a registered nurse and executive director of the New York State Nurses Association, which lobbied for the bill. But with this vote, the Assembly recognizes that New York is ready to move forward, not backwards, and put in place a system that makes patient need the priority and says no to health insurance gatekeepers, she said. We salute the Assembly and urge the Senate to do the same. So this is fantastic news. Uh, I can't even tell you how exciting this is because as I stated before, when we see states experimenting with certain policies, if, you know, California and New York chooses to be leaders with Medicare for all, what we often see is the domino effect. So even though it's just in California or just in New York, well, maybe a few years later, Oregon passes it and then Colorado passes it. This is exactly what happened recently with marijuana. So once Colorado 
and Washington voted to legalize recreational marijuana. Two years uh, later, Oregon and Alaska did. And then two years later, we had California and Maine and other states. So this is how you get the ball rolling. So we all have a vested interest in these bills in New York and California, even if we don't reside in those states. Because what happens in one state may spill over into other states. And that's exactly what we need. We need one state, just one to do a Medicare for All system, get it right, and show everyone else in the country that it can be done. Because once one of these two states show that it can be done and that it's possible, then there's absolutely no, no excuse. We're not getting what our neighbors to the north in Canada are getting. We're getting mistreated. We're getting ripped off by the health insurance industry, namely because our elected officials in Congress are being bankrolled by the health insurance industry. So if one of these states can get this done and get it done right, then this will be fantastic. And this bill might even be more progressive than Canada's single-payer system because I don't honestly know if Canada covers dental with their single-payer system. And, you know, certainly if you have universal healthcare coverage in countries like the UK and France, not all of them cover dental or vision. You get the whole nine yards. This is the real deal. Wow, this is fantastic. So look, we all, we all know what we got to do now, right? Uh, you know, if you've been watching the Humanist Report, you know that grassroots activism is the way that we get these bills codified into law. So if you live in New York, you've got to call your state representative, your state senator, uh, and let them know that you want them to support this bill. And also, for those of us who are outside of New York, we can call Governor Andrew Cuomo's office at 518-474-8390 and urge him to sign this bill into law and to endorse it publicly because that could do a lot. I mean, you can get so much momentum for this bill just with that. So this is fantastic news, and I am incredibly excited about it. And you should be too because it shows that the momentum and the pressure that we're putting on our elected officials, it's paying off. They're paying attention. We're crying out for Medicare for All, and certain states are starting to listen. We just got to keep at it. The George Soros-funded Center for American Progress, led by corporate Democrat extraordinaire Neera Tandon, recently held an ideas conference where they brought together all of the potential 2020 presidential contenders, and they decided to share their ideas, share their ideas about policy, talk about what the party should do going forward and how they can appeal to voters. But there was one potential 2020 presidential contender that was conspicuously absent from this event. And that individual is Bernie Sanders. Now, Bernie Sanders didn't go to this event, not because he didn't want to, but because he wasn't invited to go to this event. So, the nation explains, in the battle over ideas in the Democratic Party, it's clear the moderates aren't getting much quarter. This was on display at the Ideas Conference held Tuesday by the Center for American Progress, the Central Policy and Personnel Clearinghouse for Democratic Administrations. Just before the event, the think tank released a Marshall Plan for America, an ambitious jobs guarantee via a large-scale permanent program of public employment and infrastructure investment. The racially and gender-diverse main speakers ranged from the liberal to the very liberal. Senator Elizabeth Warren gave a strong lunch keynote demanding 
strong antitrust enforcement to break up concentrated economic power. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand extolled the necessity of paid family leave. Senator Cory Booker demanded universal health care. Senator Kamala Harris called for the total decriminalization of marijuana and the election of progressive prosecutors nationwide. Representative Keith Ellison called Trump's voter fraud commission a scam and a setup. And Senator Jeff Merkley demanded a green transformation of the energy economy that would put every coal electricity generating plant into a museum by the year 2050. Many of these speakers, particularly the ones gifted a keynote speaking spot, are widely rumored to be seeking the White House and the mainstream media portrayed the event as a cattle call for 2020 candidates. But there was an awkward absence. Senator Bernie Sanders, he was not invited to the Ideas Conference and his exclusion makes clear that while Democrats are converging around a general set of ideological principles, the party still faces some serious coalition building problems. CAP President Neera Tandon explained to the Washington Post, we were trying to emphasize a new generation and the CAP spokesperson told the nation that nobody who ran for president before was invited. Attendance was restricted in other ways too. There was no website for the event, which was held at the swanky Four Seasons Hotel, nor a way for anyone to attend unless CAP sent a personal invite, though one could pay 1000 to attend the Progressive Party after the conference. The audience was primarily donors to the think tank, as well as CAP's professional allies across D.C. and representatives of some grassroots organizing groups, including Wall of Us, Town Hall Project, Action Group Network, Men for Choice, New Leaders Council, Action Alliance, Rise Stronger, Run for Something, FiveCalls.org, Democracy Labs, and Flippable. But an invite-only event at one of the most expensive hotels still created a distinctly elite feel, despite the genuinely populist economic agenda that was being promoted. So this says a lot about where the Democratic Party's priorities priorities are and the way they truly feel about the progressive wing of the party. And I'm glad that Bernie Sanders didn't go because I wouldn't have wanted him to attend this Democratic Party circle jerk where a bunch of donors get together at the swanky hotel and they talk about things while excluding grassroots activists because I don't think that's Bernie's style, so I don't think he would have attended it. And also, it would be a bad look. But the justification to me for excluding Bernie Sanders is hilarious because Neera Tandon had her head so far up Hillary Clinton's asshole that she couldn't even see light anymore. She was one of the biggest cheerleaders for Hillary Clinton. She pushed for Hillary Clinton relentlessly to the detriment of Bernie Sanders. She continues to smear grassroots progressives, but apparently she didn't invite Bernie because, you know, he ran before. Well, I would have more respect for Neera Tandon if she just straight up told the truth because everybody knows that she hates Bernie Sanders. Now, to me, I think the fact that a corporate tool like Neera Tandon, you know, holding this meeting with donors, high dollar donors, mind you, who fund the Center for American Progress, that's not surprising. This doesn't surprise me about Neera Tandon, but here's what does surprise me. People like Elizabeth Warren, people like Jeff Merkley and Keith Ellison, so-called progressives who decided to attend this. They could have taken a stand and said, you know what, look, Bernie Sanders, who is the most popular politician in the country, he's the future of the party. And if he's excluded, and if he's excluded, excuse me, <laughs> that sounded really dirty. If Bernie Sanders is excluded and isn't even given an invite, then I'm not going to associate with the Center for American Progress. But, you know, being opportunistic tools of the establishment, Elizabeth Warren, Keith Ellison, Jeff Merkley, they decided to, to uh, go along with Neera Tandon. This speaks volumes, and pretty soon Elizabeth Warren is going to have to make a choice. Is she with us or against us? Because she continues to play both sides. You know, she praises Hillary Clinton for starting a super PAC, and then she uh, endorses Hillary Clinton 
But then she, you know, she talks a good game when it comes to regulating Wall Street. Elizabeth, are you progressive or are you not progressive? What's it going to be? Are you with us or against us? Because if you're part of the establishment, you're against the grassroots. They are in direct opposition. Those are two mutually exclusive camps and you can't have feet in both camps. You've got to pick a side, Elizabeth. So which side is it? And I'm just so embarrassed that my senator, Jeff Merkley, would attend this. And Keith Ellison, I mean, you had so much grassroots support when you ran to be the DNC chair and you attended this anti-grassroots conference. Really? Really? You attended... The conference, hosted by a corporate tool near Attendon, who is opposed to the grassroots activism in the country. She won't tell you that she's opposed to it, but she's opposed to it. So why would they show up to this event, especially if one of their colleagues is excluded? Well, look, I'm glad you didn't uh, invite Bernie because it says more about you than it does about Bernie Sanders. And if Bernie Sanders would have attended this event, he would have been tainted because we don't want anything to do with the Center for American Progress because you're not a about progress. You're not in favor of getting money out of politics. You're funded by George Soros, the Koch brother equivalent on the Democratic Party side. That's not acceptable. We want nothing to do with George Soros. He can take all the money he has and shove it right up his ass. We want nothing to do with that. We want nothing to do with you. So to Elizabeth Warren, Jeff Merkley... Keith Ellison, if you really plan on running for president in 2020, think about your actions. Think carefully about what you do and how that's perceived by grassroots activists. Because as Hillary Clinton demonstrated, if you don't win us over, you don't win the White House. It's that simple. A new article in Politico highlights how Bernie Sanders is apparently pissing off some establishment Democrats because he might be running for president again in 2020. Now, throughout the article, Politico presents both sides in a seemingly neutral manner. However, while I'm reading you the story, I want you to pay attention to the subtle jabs that the authors include here that are completely unnecessary. And at the end of the article, I'll tell you why they're including these jabs here. And they're not just presenting this in a neutral light. They're not being objective. They're trying to do the bidding of the establishment and also slander Bernie Sanders. So they state, many top Democrats are furious that Bernie Sanders appears to be running for president again, or at least planning to drag out his decision long enough to freeze the race around him. But the senator, who will be 79 the next time the New Hampshire primary rolls around, is continuing to put himself at the center of the conversation. Some of his moves, like collecting names and email addresses via RSVPs to his unity tour with New Democratic National Committee Chair Tom Perez for his friends of the Bernie Sanders group, a mailing list that the DNC itself won't have any access to, have alienated his allies on the left. The fact that Tom Perez has given Sanders a platform without Sanders genuinely agreeing to work toward unity has made a mockery of the whole process and literally divided the party more than it was before the tour began. It has been a disaster, said Marcos Melitzas, the founder of the influential liberal daily cost site. Yes, Perez and company are clearly afraid of Sanders and his followers, but letting Sanders make a mockery of the party doesn't exactly help it build in the long haul. He's a constant reminder. He allows the healing that needs to take place to not take place, said one longtime senior partner party official, who like others, remains too worried about appearing to oppose Sanders to speak on the record. Former DNC Chair Donna Brazil warned party leaders against relying on Sanders unless they're willing to give in on opening the party to more independence like he wants. He's not someone who 
we should go to to build or rebuild or expand our party unless he's willing, she said. Touring the country with Perez, Sanders sought to stamp his economic populism on the head of the DNC, but people familiar with the arrangement said he also spent much of the time traveling with the party chair on their private Gulfstream jet, getting to learn about Perez's personal history, which he hadn't bothered to read up on earlier. If he were to run again, he would almost certainly be by far the most famous entrant dominating the left and sucking up far more television coverage than he did before. But he would also have four years worth of new baggage to contend with, including barbs from Clinton allies who still quietly blame him for her loss. If he doesn't run, progressives are hoping he doesn't turn the Democratic primary race into a two-year-long addition for his seal of approval. Having that dangling question out there can be a little frustrating, said one Democratic Senate staffer. If he's not going to wind up doing it, is there an issue of an heir apparent or is it just, this is my thing, I've built this, I take it with me? That's kind of disrespectful to the cause that rallied around him. Every once in a while, you realize that he is in fact an independent with the good and the bad that comes with it, the staffer added. So in other words, they're angry that Bernie Sanders won't rule out a 2020 run. They still blame him for Hillary Clinton's incompetence. Um, and I want to go through all of the jabs that the authors threw at him. So they included that he'll be 70 um, they also said that the DNC won't have access to his mailing list. They said that he hadn't bothered to research Tom Perez because Tom Perez is super important. Um, they said he would be the most dominant person on the left if he decides to run and he'd suck up even more media coverage than he did before because apparently there wasn't a blackout. We were all dreaming <laughs> about Bernie Sanders getting virtually no coverage in comparison with Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. They gave Donald Trump $2 billion worth of free coverage. Bernie Sanders got virtually nothing, but he sucked up all the coverage and he's going to suck up more coverage than he did before. Give me a break. They also state here that they're hoping that he doesn't turn the Democratic primary race into a two-year-long addition for a seal of approval. So these are all things that they didn't have to include that nobody from either side said that they decided to include. And it's because they're trying to prime you. They want you to think that Bernie Sanders shouldn't run. They want you to think that he's too old to run or that he's being greedy by not giving up his mailing list to the DNC. But they don't want to overtly say that. So if they prime you, they kind of plant that seed in your head, then maybe you'll come to your own conclusion that, well, maybe Bernie Sanders shouldn't run because he's 79. The article states it. You know, they're, they're not making any direct implications there. They're just stating a fact. Maybe he's too old to run. That's what they're trying to do. So they're trying to be really disingenuous here. Plant these seeds in your head so you think maybe Bernie Sanders shouldn't run. It's incredibly disingenuous. It's a tactic known as priming. And political scientists such as Kinder and Iyengar discovered that this is one of the main tools that the media has to manipulate the public. They discovered this decades ago, and it is still in full effect. So uh, I find this incredibly manipulative because for me, I mean, obviously, I'm the first one to state that there's nothing wrong with you having a preference. For me, you know exactly where I stand. However, it's misleading and shady to pretend to be objective, to pretend to present both sides in a neutral light, when in actuality, what you're trying to do is get people to think about Bernie Sanders in a certain way, when you're not telling them that you do actually have preferences. And we're onto their tricks, and we have to be wary of the media when they do this. This is a strategy that they do, that they've been doing for a really long time, and they do it because it works. So I want to address some of the things here now, getting to the substance of the article. They're blaming Bernie Sanders for the lack of unity, basically. That's what we get. Top Democrats are furious at Bernie Sanders. They're blaming him for the lack of unity. 
and they're angry that we won't unify behind a corporate finance party. And think about what they did to stifle Bernie Sanders. Never mind that Bernie Sanders, you know, is the most popular politician in the country and that they should all be uniting behind him. But Keith Ellison, when he announced that he would be running to be the next DNC chair, he started to gain a lot of momentum. He got the endorsements from progressives like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, but also from establishment figures like Chuck Schumer. So if there was ever going to be a time where unity might be a possibility, it would have been behind someone like Keith Ellison, who wasn't the best progressive, but he's better than Tom Perez. However, what happened? Once Keith Ellison gained a little bit too much momentum, Tom Perez was foisted upon us. President Barack Obama decided to push him into the race and make calls on behalf of Tom Perez to people within the DNC and said, you know what, we've got to go with Tom Perez. So we could have had unity, but instead you decided to put a corporate tool like Tom Perez as the head of the DNC. So if anything, you're stifling unity. So don't give me this bullshit that Bernie Sanders and his supporters are preventing unity. We're not going to unify behind a corporate puppet. And you you had your chance. I mean, you could have made Bernie Sanders the DNC chair. You could have made Keith Ellison the DNC chair. You chose the worst possible choice to be the DNC chair. So there could have been unity, but the establishment stopped that. And one thing that pisses me off is that whenever you hear them talking badly about Bernie Sanders, it's always a senior staffer or a Senate official who refuses to go on the record. And they stated that, you know, he's preventing healing from taking place. So the most popular politician in the country with an 85% approval rating among Democrats is the one that's preventing unity from taking place. It's not the establishment who doesn't want Bernie Sanders' agenda to be what the Democrats fight for because that would go against their corporate donors. It's not, it's not that that's preventing unity. It's Bernie Sanders that's preventing the healing. It's not Hillary Clinton and her ilk who refuses to go away, who just lost to Donald Trump, who's historically disliked, they're not causing pain. It's the most popular politician in the country who everyone loves. And I want to get to what Donna Brazil said here because she's using her words very carefully. She states here that, you know, he's not someone that we should go to to rebuild the party unless he wants to. Donna, what do, you, what do you think he's been doing for the past few months? He's pissing off his own supporters by trying to rebuild the Democratic Party. It's like trying to polish a turd. It still stinks. It still smells like shit. It still looks like shit because it is shit. And Bernie Sanders is still doing that when we desperately want him to join his own party. We're trying to draft him to form a people's party, but you're sitting here still wondering whether or not he is willing to rebuild the party. That's what he's trying to do. But just say what you really feel, Donna, that you don't want him to rebuild the party because that would remove the corporate influence that they currently have. And that means that the Democratic Party won't get as much money. Just admit that that's what you want. I mean, you don't have to beat around the bush. We know where you stand, Donna. We know where you stand. You helped tip the scales in favor of Hillary Clinton throughout the primaries. You were fired from CNN. We know where you stand. So, uh, your disingenuous little comment here, it's bullshit. Now, what this all tells me is that the party is still out of touch. It's incredibly frustrating that they look at Bernie Sanders as someone who's getting in the way of their plans. No, that's not the way it is. You're getting in the way of our plans because you lost. You guys botched your attempt at winning the presidency for a third consecutive term, and you lost to Donald Trump, a reality TV show buffoon. 
who is historically disliked, you lost to him. So if anyone's stifling unity, if anyone is preventing healing, it's Hillary Clinton who decided to form this stupid super PAC. It's the establishment who refuses to start raising money via grassroots and not through large multinational corporations. They're the ones who are the problem, not Bernie. So if they're furious that Bernie Sanders might run, well, it doesn't matter if Bernie Sanders does or doesn't run because we have people like Tulsi Gabbard who might run. And best believe that we are not going to fall in line be behind a corporate tool. If we've done anything, we've made that clear. So we already know that there's an ongoing class action lawsuit against the DNC and Debbie Wasserman Schultz because they decided to rig the primaries in favor of Hillary Clinton. However, a local CBS affiliate in Philadelphia is reporting that there's another class action lawsuit against the DNC simultaneously. So they state, the host committee for the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia has paid out nearly a million dollars to staff members and local institutions from leftover money it raised to stage the event. But dozens of people who worked in the field elsewhere in the country for Democrats feel shortchanged and are now part of a class action federal lawsuit. The bonuses ranged from $500 for interns to more than $300,000 for the executive director. I think everyone's reactions is the same. It's obscene, says Justin Swidler, a Cherry Hill-based attorney. Swidler is pursuing a lawsuit on behalf of 40 to 50 field organizers all over the country whom he says were denied overtime compensation. One of the arguments that the Democrats are making is that they just don't have the money to pay overtime to their workers, said Swidler. The named defendants are the Democratic National Committee, the Pennsylvania Democratic Party, and five more state party organizations. These workers were out there in a campaign that was promising a $15 an hour minimum wage and expanding the overtime rights of workers, Swidler said. Former Governor Ed Rendell, who served as chairman of the host committee, points out those were totally different operations. He says none of the plaintiffs worked for the host committee, and it was not named in the suit. Swidler says she and others believed in the Democratic platform and ideals and put in 80 to 90 hours a week in the last stages of the race in support of Hillary Clinton. They got paid a flat salary of 3000 a month, which isn't even minimum wage for some of the hours they were working, said Swidler. He says the lawsuit seeks fair pay for fair work and holding the Democratic Party to the very ideals that it embraced. So this case right here is emblematic of the broader issue that Democrats have. It's just that they're brazenly hypocritical because you have this party, they're championing the idea of a minimum wage increase. They're talking about how they're going to protect overtime pay. They talk about equal pay for equal work, and yet they can't even abide by their own principles. So the rules that they're going to mandate on the whole country, they can't even abide by themselves. How hypocritical is that? So while staff members who were organizing the Democratic Convention in Philadelphia got bonuses, well, people who were out in the field got nothing. They got shortchanged. And this is just another problem that the DNC has. I mean, they keep coming up with these lawsuits because they keep treating people unfairly. They keep committing fraud. And it's a broader issue. I mean, when it comes to Debbie Wasserman Schultz, when it comes to Democratic Party leaders in each state even, most of them use fraud as a business model. They are willing to help their own careers, do shady things, to stomp on the grassroots activists if they are going to get promoted, if they're going to get raises. And this is just another example of that. I mean, you saw the interview that I did with Nico House where he talked about how they're looking out for themselves. It's not okay. Uh, so, you know, I wanted to talk about this because the DNC has an image problem and they need to be reformed from top to bottom. And this just shows that... <laughs> 
that's the case. Even though Wall Street crashed the economy in 2008, what little regulations we currently have on Wall Street, we know that they hate it and they're doing everything they can to lobby Congress to get those removed and repealed. Now, the problem is that they're not really going to be able to do this without getting Democrats on board. And they're currently spending a lot of money trying to lobby Democrats. So according to the International Business Times, in their years-long quest to rescind bank regulations and oppose the Obama administration's fiduciary rule, financial executives have at times needed the help of a group of Wall Street-friendly Democratic lawmakers to secure votes necessary to advance their agenda. Now, as those executives and Republican lawmakers seek the votes needed to help Donald Trump dismantle Dodd-Frank rules, a caucus of moderate House Democrats has chosen a former Wall Street executive and prolific fundraiser of finance industry money to lead them. Representative Jim Himes of Connecticut, a former Goldman Sachs vice president representing Greenwich and the newly elected head of the moderate new Democratic coalition, is scheduled on Wednesday to be feted at a fundraiser at the Washington home of Lou Costantino, according to an invite obtained by the transparency group Political Party Time. There is a Lou Costantino, who is a former Merrill Lynch lobbyist, who is now the top lobbyist for Managed Funds Association, a major trade association for the hedge fund and private equity industries. Himes is one of the most active Wall Street fundraisers in the Democratic caucus, having raked in more than $2.6 million from the industry during his eight-year congressional career. If the fundraiser is the MFA's Lou Costantino, the timing of the event is significant, because it comes just as Wall Street lobbyists are looking to peel off Democratic votes to change Dodd-Frank. Himes may be a top target because of his new position leading the new Democrat coalition. A group of 61 Democrats in the House who have in the past provided key support to Republicans on Wall Street in their efforts to block or weaken Obama administration financial rules. So think of the implications here. So the members of this new Democrat coalition, which it's just, it should be called the old Democrat coalition because it's more of the same pro-Wall Street policies. There's nothing to do with them being moderates. They're just the status quo Democrat here. But, you know, these Democrats, they came together. They chose Himes because he's a, quote, prolific fundraiser from Wall Street and he came from the industry. So they're thinking that if they get behind Himes, well, he's someone who could really help their electoral prospects because he's able to uh, go to his donors on Wall Street, go to his friends on Wall Street, his colleagues on Wall Street, former colleagues, and get them to raise money uh, for people in this caucus. So they chose him because they're greedy, because they're self-interested, and they may be willing to repeal Dodd-Frank, which, again, it's better than nothing, but it doesn't do enough to reign in Wall Street. They may be willing to repeal even that, so we can't even have Dodd-Frank. That's the state of our country. We are so controlled by corporate interests that we can't even have milquetoast policy like Dodd-Frank. It's just so infuriating to me, and anyone who is a Democrat should be calling them out. They should be embarrassed by their party. And Himes is doing favors for the industry that he came from. This is a brazen act of corruption, and the only thought that came to my head was, where are the party leaders? Where's Nancy Pelosi? Where's Chuck Schumer? Why hasn't Nancy Pelosi called Himes and said, hey, what are you doing? Think of the optics right now. We are the most unpopular we've been in a while. We've been devastated at all levels of government. We don't need you to be raising record levels of money from Wall Street, you know, for other members of your coalition, of your caucus. 
Why isn't she doing this? Why isn't she trying to rein him in when he's doing something that would have hurt the party? Well, it's because Nancy Pelosi is also a prolific fundraiser. She takes millions of dollars from the industry, and the only reason why she became a leader in the Democratic Party is because of her ability to raise money. You don't get promoted in the Democratic Party unless you prove yourself as a, quote, prolific fundraiser. And Nancy Pelosi did just that. So if you think she's going to rein him in in spite of the bad optics, you've got another thing coming. So what we see here is someone from the industry trying to whip up support among his colleagues in the Democratic Party and is trying to influence them to repeal rules that would benefit his former employer. This is a brazen act of corruption and it is exactly why the Democratic Party is wiped out at every level of government because when you have this level of corruption that they just flaunt in front of our face... Why, what, what reason do we have to come out to support you? Because you're marginally better than the Republicans? No. Either you reform and Democratic Party leaders hold these corporate tools responsible and accountable, or the party will continue to lose. This is an embarrassment. They should be ashamed of themselves. And any Democrat who's part of this so-called new Democrat coalition, you should be ashamed of yourself because you're not a new Democrat. You're an old Democrat. You're part of the status quo. You're part of the problem. And you need to leave office if you're not going to represent voters. In the United States, we imprison people at a higher rate than any other country in the world. And every president dating back to Nixon has exacerbated the problem with their policies until President Obama came into office and he started to reverse course, he started to pardon nonviolent drug offenders. But now that Jeff Sessions is Attorney General, he's trying to reverse what little progress President Obama made. According to CNN, Attorney General Jeff Sessions has a new director for federal prosecutors across the country. Charge suspects with the most serious offense you can prove. Charging and sentencing recommendations are bedrock responsibilities of any prosecutor, and I trust our prosecutors in the field to make good judgments. Judgment session said Friday at a news conference in Washington. They deserve to be unhandcuffed and not micromanaged from Washington. In a brief one and a half page memo, Sessions outlined his new instructions for charging decisions in federal cases, saying that his new first principle is that prosecutors should charge and pursue the most serious, readily provable offense. The most serious offenses are those that carry the most substantial guideline sentence, including mandatory minimum sentences, Sessions later added. Now, I find what he's trying to do here contradictory because on one hand, he's saying, well, you know, I have faith in our prosecutors. I don't think that we should try to micromanage them and they should be able to prosecute criminals, you know, at their own discretion. Yet here he is trying to micromanage them and saying, you know, we need to charge criminals with the most serious provable offense. Well, which is it? You can't have it both ways. Either you don't want to micro uh, micromanage prosecutors and you want their hands unhandcuffed or you are going to handcuff them and tell them to abide by your draconian directive. And you can't talk about this story without addressing the racial component. Mandatory minimums and, you know, just tough on crime policies, generally speaking, always disproportionately harm people of color. And when you think about Jeff Sessions and his intentions, well, He's a racist. He's proven time and again that he's a racist. And if you don't want to take my word for it as someone who's a liberal, if you think I'm an SJW, which I'm not, but if you disagree with my analysis, 
and my characterization of Jeff Sessions, then you should listen to the Reagan-era Republicans who voted against approving Jeff Sessions to be a judge because they thought that he was too racially insensitive. So the fact that studies and statistics shows that mandatory minimums and tough-on-crime policies disproportionately harm people of color and given Jeff Sessions' horrible policies when it comes to race... We know his intentions. He's doing this because he knows this is a way that he can harm African Americans and Latinos. And for some reason, he has contempt for them. I don't know why that's the case, but he has contempt for them. And what he's doing will harm these communities. And it will also disproportionately harm the poor. Now, there's also a second component to this story besides Jeff Sessions' racism. And that is that there's money to be made. Because in this country, we have a prison industrial complex where private prisons who contribute to the campaigns of politicians, they make money when we lock people up. So they don't like that Obama decided to start reversing course. And Obama, again, he made some progress. He took us in, you know, the right direction, but certainly there's a lot more work to be done. But they didn't like that because when people are no longer in prison, these for-profit prisons lose money. And they don't like that. So what Jeff Sessions is doing is the bidding of Republican Party donors. So he's moving us in the completely opposite direction that we should be moving in. And this is a policy that hurts the poor. And intersectionality is certainly an issue because if you're poor and African-American and Latino, you're going to be harmed by this the most. So this is something that should shake everyone to the core if you're worried about democracy, if you're worried about the marginalization of disadvantaged groups in the country. It's something that cannot stand. And mandatory minimums, again, it's not okay. This will exacerbate the problem of mass incarceration that each subsequent president after Nixon played a part in. I mean, even back to the Clintons, during Bill Clinton's administration, when he did his whole tough-on-crime bill, mass incarceration exploded. So this this is not acceptable. And Jeff Sessions is... His agenda is insidious, and we see right through you, Jeff. We know you're a racist. We know that you're doing the bidding of the Republican Party's donors. And also, you know, you get to lock up some African Americans and Latinos. So it's a win-win-win for Jeff Sessions. Sickening. Last week on the show, we speculated as to whether or not Donald Trump's abrupt decision to fire FBI Director James Comey had anything to do with him possibly trying to obstruct justice. And now that we have the Comey memo, it seems as though that's definitely the case. So the New York Times explains President Donald Trump asked FBI Director James B. Comey to shut down the federal investigation into Mr. Trump's former National Security Advisor Michael T. Flynn in an Oval Office meeting in February, according to a memo Mr. Comey wrote shortly after the meeting. I hope you can let this go, the president told Mr. Comey, according to the memo. I hope you can see your way clear to letting this go, to letting Flynn go, Mr. Trump told Mr. Comey. He is a good guy. I hope you can let this go. Mr. Trump told Mr. Comey that Mr. Flynn had done nothing wrong, according to the memo. And we then know what happened next. Comey would not let it go. Donald Trump later fired him. Donald Trump fired James Comey to obstruct justice because he didn't want James Comey looking into Donald Trump or his allies. And it's so serious that it could literally bring down Donald Trump's administration. 
We're talking about impeachment. That's how serious this is. Now, the correct move now is to be to appoint a special prosecutor to look into Donald Trump and Michael Flynn and Paul Manafort. And that's exactly what happened. So Politico explains the Justice Department on Wednesday named former FBI Director Robert Mueller to serve as special counsel investigating Russia's alleged involvement in the 2016 presidential election, including any possible involvement of President Donald Trump's campaign in that effort. Now, had Donald Trump not decided to brazenly obstruct justice, this wouldn't have happened. But now he's complaining about it, and he's calling the fact that they are appointing a special prosecutor a witch hunt. Now, among other things, he said, I believe it hurts our country terribly because it shows we're a divided, mixed up, not unified country, Trump said in his first public remarks about the appointment of former FBI director Robert Mueller to probe the Russian controversy. And we have very important things to be doing right now, whether it's trade deals, whether it's military whether it's stopping nuclear, all of the things that we discussed today. And I think this shows a very divided country. Yes, because Donald Trump is so noble. He's looking out for us. He cares about the issues. That's why he pushed his party to take away health insurance. I mean, this guy is unbelievable. So I'm not personally sold on the Trump-Russia collusion story. However, if by appointing this special prosecutor, we're able to discover corrupt business deals that Donald Trump made in Russia, or anywhere else for that matter, then I'm okay with it. And let me just say this. The reason why I support an investigation is because I'm always going to be in favor of more information and not less. But meanwhile, Democrats have got to tone down the Russian hysteria because there's currently no evidence of collusion. And even if they can prove that Russia did leak DNC emails and John Podesta's emails to WikiLeaks, I don't think that's really a bombshell because I don't think that that really had that big of an influence on the election. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can take the word of establishment media outlets like the Daily Beast who said that WikiLeaks actually trolled the world because what they released was nothing on Hillary Clinton. They said it was a big womp womp and, you know, it had no influence. But once Hillary Clinton lost and they were scrambling to figure out why she lost, well, they decided to pin blame on WikiLeaks all of a sudden. But we try to influence elections all the time. France didn't complain when Obama endorsed Macron and Bill Clinton stated his preference before in Russian elections. And there's a lot of people on the left that vehemently disagree with me here, and that's fine. If you can find evidence, however, in this investigation that Donald Trump worked with the Russians to rig voting booths, that's a whole nother story. That's unacceptable. And I obviously unequivocally denounced that. However, simply releasing emails exposing corruption... I don't think that's tantamount to rigging the election. And don't take my word for it. Take the word of establishment outlets like the Daily Beast, because they're the ones who originally said that there was nothing going on. And Vox even had an article where they made fun of the WikiLeaks release of John Podesta's email, saying that it exposed his recipe for creamy risotto. So, I mean, they said it was nothing until... They wanted to pin Hillary Clinton's election loss on something. However, with that being said, even though I disagree with fellow liberals and even fellow progressives on this issue, we're starting to come to an agreement around the issue of obstruction of justice. That's something where we all agree that that is not acceptable. Obstructing justice is not acceptable. And if Donald Trump did do that, then yes, I think that that is something that is an impeachable offense. And to anyone who is a Donald Trump supporter who doesn't think this is an obstruction of justice, let me ask you this. When Bill Clinton met with Loretta Lynch just days before James Comey made an announcement surrounding the investigation into Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server, did you think that was an obstruction of justice? Well, if you think that's an obstruction of justice, but Donald Trump firing James Comey isn't, 
just specifically when he asked him to back down from Flynn and he didn't. If you think that that's not an obju- uh, obstruction of justice, then you're biased. You need to be more objective. You need to realize that obstruction of justice is not okay when Bill Clinton doesn't. It's not okay when Hillary Clinton doesn't. And it's not okay when Donald Trump doesn't. And we should hold all elites to the same exact standard because you don't get to escape conviction or punishment just because you're wealthy or just because you're powerful. If you break the law, you should be held accountable. And because Donald Trump now, we have evidence that he tried to obstruct justice, it's time we get serious about impeachment. And when it comes to the possibility of impeachment, that's now a real possibility. And the first Democrat called for it on the House floor this week. I rise today, Mr. Speaker, to call for the impeachment of the President of the United States of America for obstruction of justice. I do not do this for political purposes, Mr. Speaker. I do this because I believe in the great ideals that this country stands for, liberty and justice for all. The notion that we should have government of the people, by the people, for the people. I do it because, Mr. Speaker, no one is above the law, and that includes the president. Now, some people may brush Al Green off as, you know, a partisan hack, when I actually don't think that's the case. He's one of the few members of Congress that I think is better than the rest. Uh, There's even some Republicans who are open to the idea of impeaching Donald Trump. So the Hill reports, Representative Justin Amash on Wednesday said, if the reports about Donald Trump's pressure on Comey are true, it would merit impeachment. But everybody gets a fair trial in this country, Amash added as he left a House GOP conference meeting. And I think that Talking about impeaching Donald Trump is long overdue because I'm one of the first people that said Donald Trump should have been impeached because he was in violation of the emoluments clause on the day he was sworn in. And that's already cause for impeachment. But I mean, evidence of him obstructing justice puts the need for him to be impeached over the top. So if you break the law, you've got to go. And I'm <laughs> I'm going to be very clear here. Does that mean that we're better off with Pence? Not at all. I think Don- uh, Donald Trump... Is not as bad as Pence. In fact, I think that uh, Mike Pence is exponentially worse because he's someone who actually is intelligent to a degree. He's more calculating. He's someone who could get things done and do some real political damage. However, just the fact that Pence is more scary doesn't mean that we shouldn't hold Donald Trump accountable because if you have a democracy and you have elected officials that break the law, they don't get to get away with it because of the consequences of, you know, someone else who might replace them. They don't get to get away with it because they're powerful. He doesn't get head of state immunity. If Donald Trump obstructed justice, Donald Trump needs to be impeached. So, uh, you know, I find this story a bombshell. If Comey's memo is true, if Donald Trump fired Comey because Comey would not back down on his investigation... That is a very, very serious thing, and nobody should take it lightly. This last week was probably the worst for Donald Trump yet, because there were so many embarrassing, incriminating stories that I don't know how he's ever going to live it down. So we learned that he blabbed and revealed classified information to Russian officials when they were here, 
And furthermore, we realize that he really is the man baby who we thought he was with the world's shortest attention span because we learned that officials have to include Donald Trump's name in as many paragraphs as possible because that's the only way that he doesn't get distracted while reading memos because if he sees his name is mentioned, then he wants to keep reading. He also stated that after this week, quote, no politician in history, and I say this with great surety, has been treated worse or more unfairly. You say this with surety because I'm pretty sure JFK was shot and assassinated. I'm pretty sure that you're treated better than JFK. But I mean, who am I to judge? You know, he's the president. You know, he, he knows more than me, apparently. So this is a guy that's immature. He's narcissistic. He's a megalomaniac. And he's not fit to serve as dog catcher, let alone president. But this is the guy who is in charge of the most powerful country, both militarily and economically, in the world. And that's a really scary thought. But we learned perhaps the most troubling details about Donald Trump yet. So the New York Times explains, during a private meeting in February with the former FBI director James B. Comey, President Trump floated a proposal that even by the standards of a leader who routinely advertises his disdain for the news media, brought editors and reporters up short. You should consider, Mr. Trump told Mr. Comey, jailing journalists who publish classified information. At the February 14th meeting, Mr. Trump was fixated on a series of damaging leaks about his administration, according to one of Mr. Comey's associates, who conveyed to the Times the contents of a memo Mr. Comey wrote after the meeting. The topic led Mr. Trump to suggest that Mr. Comey consider putting reporters in prison for disseminating classified information, the associate said, suggesting that the government should prosecute journalists for the publication of classified information is very menacing, and I think that's exactly what they intend, said Martin Barone, the Washington Post's executive editor. It's an act of intimidation. Now understand here, by specifically saying that he wants to jail journalists that release classified information, that's not too much of a deviation from his predecessors. However, by claiming that Comey should jail people that leak information about his administration, well, that's not classified information, and that is a huge departure. So the person who leaked the Comey memo, he wants to jail that individual when the Comey memo is not highly classified information at all. So he's now implying that we should jail journalists for leaking general information that he doesn't want to get out. And the Guardian reports, apparently Trump was even insisting at one point that the FBI needed to go after leaks about non-classified information which is not a crime by anyone's standards. So this right here is authoritarianism. I mean, having a free press, that is a crucial part of democracy. Regardless if you are critical of the press like I am and if you think that they're too beholden to corporate interests, having a free press that's disconnected from the government is absolutely crucial. And the First Amendment gives them the freedom to hold elected officials accountable. Yes, including Donald Trump. And the media, you know, they're often referred to as the fourth branch of government because they're supposed to be a check on government tyranny, on government abuse. So by sending them to jail when they reveal information about Donald Trump, that is exactly what authoritarian regimes do. And think about some of the things that he wants to jail journalists for. Anyone who leaked information about his administration. So whoever leaked the story about officials that include his name in memos, 
Well, according to Trump, that person should be jailed. Also, the person who leaked the embarrassing information about how Donald Trump's team conducts meetings in the dark, namely because they're idiots and they can't find the light switch in the White House, should also be jailed. That person who leaked that information, which honestly is just the most banal piece of information ever, should be jailed. Donald Trump is a tyrant. He has no respect for the rule of law, nor does he have any respect for the First Amendment and how crucial it is to a thriving democracy. So this is something that should shake everyone to their core. The fact that we have someone with authoritarian tendencies that's willing to express authoritarian tendencies like this, that's really troubling. Now, thankfully, we have American political institutions that have existed since the founding of the country that prevent people like Donald Trump from taking over the country and actually turning us into a dictatorship. But nonetheless, it's still problematic. It's still troubling. It's still disgusting to know that we have someone that is such a thin-skinned narcissist that any leaks is something that should be an offense that's punishable by jail. It's unbelievable to me. President Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey, who took the country and turned it into an authoritarian regime when it was formerly a democracy, decided to come to America and visit President Donald Trump. And what he did, or what his armed thugs did more accurately, was import some of the authoritarian tactics that he's using in Turkey to America. So they decided to attack peaceful protesters who did not like the arrival of Tayyip Erdogan. So the New York Times explains supporters of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey, including his government security forces and several armed individuals, violently charged a group of protesters outside the Turkish ambassador's residence here on Tuesday night in what the police characterized as a brutal attack. Eleven people were injured, including a police officer, and nine were taken to a hospital. The Metropolitan Police Chief Peter Newsham said at a news conference on Wednesday, two Secret Service agents were also assaulted in the melee, according to a federal law enforcement official. The State Department condemned the attack as an assault on free speech and warned Turkey that the action would not be tolerated. We are communicating our concern to the Turkish government in the strongest possible terms, said Heather Nert a State Department spokeswoman. The confrontation came after President Trump welcomed Mr. Erdogan to the White House on Tuesday and praised him as a stalwart ally in the battle against Islamic extremism. Mr. Trump did not speak of Mr. Erdogan's authoritarian crackdown on his own people. The White House has thus far been silent on the episode. Sean Spicer, the White House press secretary, referred reporters to the State Department and declined to comment further. The Turkish embassy released the statement late Wednesday that contradicted United States officials and video evidence and blamed the demonstrators who, it said, had been aggressively provoking Turkish-American citizens who had peacefully assembled to greet the president. The president's supporters and security forces were reacting in self-defense, the statement said. That's bullshit. The episode was not the first time that Turkish security forces have ignited violence in the American capital. The police and members of Mr. Erdogan's security team clashed with demonstrators last year outside the Brookings institution, where Mr. Erdogan was giving a speech. Brookings wrote on the website that his bodyguards had behaved unacceptably. They roughed up protesters outside the building and tried to drag away undesired journalists, an approach typical of the Russians or Chinese. Thank <laughs> you.
So when I heard about this story, I was just, I was outraged. You don't get to come to America and import the authoritarian tactics that you use in Turkey. You don't, you don't get to do that. I don't care who you are. If you just solidified the fact that Turkey is an authoritarian regime, I don't care how powerful you think you are. You don't get to do that here. In America, we treat protesters with respect. And just to kind of uh, let you know how much disdain Erdogan has for opposition, one of the individuals in his administration had to go on paid leave because they kicked a protester. Now, I don't know if this protester was also a journalist, but literally they were rewarded. They were sent on paid medical leave because they kicked a protester. And the guy who did it, one of Erdogan's armed thugs, hurt his foot. So rather than reprimanding him and punishing him for assaulting a protester, violently so, uh, you rewarded him with medical leave, a paid vacation. So this is what we're dealing with here. This is someone who is an, an authoritarian strongman who took Turkey and turned it into an authoritarian regime. I mean, after they recently held a referendum where Tayyip Erdogan consolidated his power, I don't know how you can still call Turkey a democracy with a straight face because it it's anything but a democracy at this point and turkey has been sliding towards authoritarianism little by little what is really disappointing to me is that in turkey erdogan still does have a relatively large portion of support but the left-wing party in turkey because akp which is erdogan's party is a right-wing party the left-wing party they're kind of like democrats where they just can't get their act together they don't know how to appeal to the people and the thing about erdogan is that his party they tend to give things to people to encourage them to vote. So they'll go to constituents and give them groceries, for example. And my question to all of Erdogan's supporters is, why is it that he gives you just enough to remain poor? Why doesn't he actually do more to lift you out of poverty? It's it's not because he's trying to keep you beholden to him, right? He's not. It's not because he wants your support continuously, right? So I absolutely cannot stand Erdogan. And, you know, when I... Every time I hear about him, all I could think is that, you know, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, founder of Turkey, he's rolling in his grave right now. He is rolling in his grave right now, watching what Turkey has become because of Erdogan. So you don't get to come to our country and be an authoritarian and use these authoritarian tactics. So what Donald Trump needs to do right now is untuck the tail that's between his legs and actually ban Erdogan from entering the country until he apologizes or pays damages to the protesters that his armed thugs assaulted. Because this is not acceptable. In a democracy, people are allowed to assemble and peacefully protest. You don't get to do that here, Erdogan. You do not get to do that here. You may be able to do that in Turkey and get away with it, but not here. So I am just as outraged with Trump as I am with Erdogan right now, because this is something that cannot stand. And it's not like this is the first time he did that. It's not like this is the first time Erdogan came to the U.S. and started shit so unacceptable it's time that trump actually takes a stand against someone who disrespected us and disrespected the values that we stand for because he claims to be this tough guy right why don't you stand up for someone who just did something that is antithetical to democracy he assaulted american peaceful protesters turkish americans who are protesting kurdish americans who are protesting erdogan who has abused the kurds who refuses to give the Kurds their own state. So it's something that is unacceptable. This week, Elizabeth Warren pissed off progressives 
once again because she decided to publicly declare her support for Hillary Clinton's super PAC. So this is a problem because as someone who rails against dark money and money in politics generally speaking, Elizabeth Warren should not be condoning Hillary Clinton's decision to set up a super PAC to funnel even more money into politics. So with that being said, I'm wondering what progressives actually think about Elizabeth Warren because she's been going down in my book. Uh, and she's been doing a lot to piss off progressives who were her primary support base prior to her making a lot of political miscalculations. So I decided to ask my Patreon supporters what they think about Elizabeth Warren and whether or not they would support her in 2020. Now, at this point in time, there are 123 votes total, and most of them are still open to Elizabeth Warren. So 52 votes were cast for if she proves herself, they would be open to supporting her in 2020. 28 people say maybe, and 16 people just outright say yes, and only 27 people say no. So this is actually surprising to me because I was thinking that the majority would actually be against Elizabeth Warren, but they're still open to the idea. And I actually agree with the results of this poll. I'm not just going to unequivocally denounce her in 2020, but I would still support her if she proves herself. I'm open to it. So uh, some of the comments here kind of enlighten us as to what they think. So Jake D. Haggard said, it depends on what our choices are. I would support Bernie over Warren, probably Tulsi Gabbard or Ro Khanna over Warren too, but obviously Warren over any Republican or corporate Democrat. Frank Black says she has to completely break away from the establishment, form an alliance with the Justice Democrats and Green Party, otherwise give us a Stein-Sanders ticket or a Connor-Gabbard ticket. It's past the time to run the old money-worshipping, bomb-dropping hypocrites away from the biggest progressive stick we can swing. And Charles Miller states Warren will happily trash and destroy Republicans and bankers, but she has continually pulled her punches when it comes to Democrats. Before I can support her, that needs to end. And the OP Kingdom states, not as president, as VP to a strong progressive and surrounded by progressives, she could be okay. She has no backbone on her own, and I don't trust someone who watches to see which way the wind blows before taking a position. So, I mean, there you have it. I, I completely agree. I think that the Human Support Patreon patrons, they perfectly uh, <laughs> express my opinion as well. Elizabeth Warren has got to get the work. And I actually said this on the show before. I said, you know, I'm, I would still support her in 2020, but she's got to prove herself. You can't just continue doing business as usual, making political calculations that tend to fly back in her face. I mean, she was silent on Dapple. She chose to endorse Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders. So she's got to prove herself. She can take a lot of cues from Tulsi Gabbard right now, who's co-sponsor in HR 676. Elizabeth Warren has yet to co-sponsor S 1782, which is the uh, Senate companion to HR 676. So, I mean, there's a lot that she can do to prove herself and still garner support from progressives, but she's just got to put in the time and she has plenty of time. And, you know, I still think that she she needs to do a lot. I mean, she recently spoke at the Center for American Progress uh, Ideas Conference, which is headed by Neera Tandon, funded by George Soros. And you've got to stop doing these kinds of things, Elizabeth Warren, because unless you prove to us that you're not going to be involved with organizations that take big money, then we can't be serious that you're going to get money out of politics as well. So I'm also open to Elizabeth Warren, but she she's got a lot of work to do. Uh, so... It also, I, I agree that it does depend on who she's running against, but I really hope that Elizabeth Warren wakes up and actually puts in the time to learn what grassroots progressives want and are looking for in a candidate and what she's doing. Being a political coward 
is not going to win her over any support among grassroots activists. She might win over the establishment, but that's not enough to win the White House. Hillary Clinton proved that. This week, I received a message from one of my viewers in Mexico named Manuel, and he has a question about NAFTA. Uh, hi, Mike. Congratulations on your 100,000 subscribers. And really, I wanted to thank you because you've been an inspiration for me and lots of other Mexicans, I'm sure, who follow your channel uh, to get involved in the political process of our country. And I also wanted to ask you if you have any opinion on Mexico's economic relationship with the United States, because I am one of the very few Mexicans who actually supports Trump's idea of getting out of NAFTA or at the very least renegotiating it. And I wanted to know if you have any other opinion on that or like which economic policies you would support to so that both countries can benefit economically without, uh, you know, hurting its citizens. And again, thank you for all that you've done and keep going. Your, your job is amazing. Like what you do is really amazing. So first of all, thank you so much for sending in the voicemail. And I really appreciate the kind words. It really means a lot to me. Um, so to answer your question, uh, you know, it's it's relatively difficult because trade... Trade is a big subject. Trade is a convoluted subject. Um, but what you did say was enlightening to me. So before I answer your question, I will say that um, I do agree with you for the most part. And I'm actually surprised that more Mexicans don't agree with you because NAFTA is one of the many ways that my country screws over your country. I mean, the United States exploits Mexican workers. Uh, but with that being said, out of all the things that Donald Trump says that are harmful... Uh, and all the draconian policies that he's proposed, I think that when it comes to trade, his rhetoric at least is has been agreeable. I mean, him killing off the TPP, putting that final nail in the coffin of the TPP was a good thing. And I think when he says that he wants to renegotiate or potentially pull out of NAFTA, I'm inclined to think that's a good thing and agree with you. However, I would rather Donald Trump just pull out of NAFTA altogether than renegotiate NAFTA because I don't actually trust Donald Trump. I don't trust that he would renegotiate it into a policy that wouldn't just be more corporate welfare or wouldn't harm Mexican and American workers even more. I don't trust him because he's a corrupt businessman that took advantage of NAFTA. And the thing about NAFTA is that I don't know if it can be fixed because the whole premise of it is flawed. So it allows multinational corporations to basically shut down manufacturing companies in America, ship those jobs over to Mexico, and then exploit Mexi Mexican workers because your country doesn't have labor laws uh, that protect workers as much as American uh, workers are protected. So they're able to make more money, increase profits, and basically pay Mexican workers slave wages. And I think that this form of exploitation is one of the most disgusting consequences of capitalism, and it makes me sick. And what was promised to us in the first place was that, you know, by doing this, Americans might lose some jobs. However, Mexico, they're going to have a thriving middle class. Mexicans will benefit from this. But We've seen the opposite. And Mexican citizens, Mexican workers, they're not benefiting from NAFTA. So it's only a win for corporations. And when it comes to Donald Trump potentially renegotiating NAFTA, I just have zero faith in him. So I'd rather him, you know, if he's going to do anything, pull out of NAFTA. And what we maybe should do is just have a bilateral agreement 
with Mexico when it comes to certain trade things. And look, honestly, I don't know, honestly, what the perfect trade deal looks like because obviously we're neighbors. We have to trade. You know, that, I think that's essential. But we have to craft policies that benefit both workers. I mean, American workers and Mexican workers. We need bilateral arrangements that are mutually beneficial to the workers in both countries. But what we've gotten with these so-called free trade deals like NAFTA are just pro-corporate policies. And the way to facilitate more pro-worker trade deals is for both countries to agree to a minimum standard of living and to really stand up to corporations and say they're not going to allow them to exploit workers in Mexico or in America. And I don't know what a good trade deal looks like, honestly. I mean, does that mean that we impose tariffs on companies that take advantage of Mexican workers? Perhaps. So, I mean, it's a really complex question, but I know that we've got to actually get trade deals that are mutually beneficial to workers in America and Mexico. And right now, we're getting screwed over and Mexican workers are being exploited. They're getting paid a wage that is just unfair. It's exploitation. So, I don't know what the answer is. But I know that I don't like NAFTA, and I would rather Donald Trump just pull out of it altogether than try to renegotiate it, because again, <laughs> I know I, I sound really redundant, but I just don't trust Donald Trump. So I am with you, um, and I, I really appreciate the voicemail. I think that uh, your take on the matter is really important, because you know, if you want to know how NAFTA impacts Mexican workers, you have to ask someone who's a worker in Mexico. So thank you so much for submitting that mail, uh, that voicemail. Now we have another message here from Steve Smith. So let's hear him out. Oh, hello, Mike. If that's your name. I'm just, my name is Steve, and I'm seeing, you know, what's up? I guess I'd like to join your team. I was wondering, what are your political views? Are you socialist or social democrat? You know, I'm just wondering is all. You know, I'd like to join your team, but I'm seeing, I mean, where do you stand, really? That's all. <laughs> well... Thanks for the voicemail, Steve. I really appreciate it. Um, just a piece of advice. If you do want to join someone's team, maybe do a little bit of research prior to asking them about that. But I'll tell you what I stand for. So what I believe is that when we put hope on the ballot, we win. And that we are stronger together. And that if we want to make progress, we've got to break down the barriers. And I believe that we should fight for good things and fight against bad things. And that having a can-do attitude and believing that when we all come together, we win is the way to go. So I'm for platitudes and cliches, specifically. <laughs> thank you for the message. I'm not entirely sure if you were serious or not, but either way, I appreciate it. So uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, Humanistreport.com if you want to leave me a message. Well, that's a wrap for today's episode. I want to thank you all for tuning in. I want to send a special thank you to the Patreon patrons and the PayPal contributors because without you, this show could no longer exist. And when I say that, I'm not using hyperbole. It's true. So thank you all so much for your support. Thank you to anyone that shares the videos, uh, that shares you know, uh, the word about the human support. You are doing so much to help the show and spread the progressive message. Uh, and I'm really appreciative of it. So I will see you all next week. Take care.